Hi, I'm James Gagliardi, along with Natalie Wires and Jason Nyes. Between us, we have over 40 years of experience working in e-commerce technologies. But this isn't about us. This is Commerce Connect, a podcast about people who are creating some of the best e-commerce experiences of our times. Listen on to hear from e-commerce visionaries as they look back on where they started, lessons they've learned that have gotten them where they are today, and what they believe is the future of online shopping. And this is Natalie. We traveled to Mountain View, California for this edition of the podcast, where we met with Ben McCaskill. He's COO for SmugMug and Flickr, an organization that prides itself on building a community of photographers, helping people tell their stories. Ben says his love affair with customer support began when he joined SmugMug over 15 years ago. We all have choices about where to store our photos. Ben told us what makes SmugMug unique and why that's bringing additional value to customers. I think for me, one of the angles on the subscription side of things, on the commerce side, that that, um, makes us relatively unique in the space is we are actually charging subscription revenue where so many other social media and storage platforms are not. And the reason that we like that as customer-centric is I don't have to spy on you. Right, like right. Facebook, Instagram, Google, that's how they're making their money, is they're spying on you and then serving those ads based on that really invasive. Um, the term that people have been starting to use a lot is surveillance capitalism, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. so for us, we have a very transparent um, you know, uh, transaction with our customers. They pay us money, we don't invade <laughs> their life. It's really that simple. We are super early pioneers in subscription revenue. I. I never say we're the first because I'm sure there was somebody else, but you think about the consumer subscription landscape in 2002 when we started charging right. credit cards. Netflix existed, but purely in the form of the, the physical discs and postage, right? Yeah. Like that's why the cost. Amazon Prime was years later, mm-hmm. Netflix's streaming was years later, of course, Spotify and Apple Music and all those other consumer subscription services were decade later. Yeah. I don't know who else was charging consumer subscriptions online in 2002. Was it always monthly or was it annual? We started annual. Yeah. We're primarily annual on smugmug.com. It's a much more even split on Flickr, but it still skews fairly heavily towards annual. I think that shows the trust our customers have in us. Like this is it's a long-term relationship and right. so they're not kind of debating month by month, ooh, is this something I'm going to keep? I didn't listen to that much music this year or right. whatever, right? Whereas for us, they're they're longer term. So yeah, I mean, asking customers right up front for a credit card in 2002 to subscribe to a service, I think was pretty novel. I've been at Digital River for 20 years, so I, I was around during that time frame. Yeah. And the first companies that, that we had in our portfolio were the antivirus software companies. Yeah. Because that was the same thing. You would buy the annual, I mean, you'd buy a perpetual thing, and they were yeah. just giving you the, the upgrades right. as, they, you know, as they fixed them. It was still years later that they realized, no, you, know, you pay, yeah. you're, we're going to turn this into a subscription model, and what you're actually buying are the upgrades, not really the right. software, right? The, Which turned out to be a hugely lucrative model yeah. for someone. I mean, Adobe is making bank off of that right now. Same sort of thing, but yeah, like yeah. it was a very... There's much more predictable and easy to run business. I mean, subscription business is so easy to forecast in general on that sort of stuff. Very, very different landscape now. There's so many. Everybody's everybody's subscription-based these days. 
in, in doing some investigation, it sounds like you went to school for pharmaceuticals. Right. But you, you're now the uh, chief operating <laughs> officer at, at Smug Mug and, and Flickr. It, it seems like a, a change in directions. Absolutely, a, a, a dramatic change for me. So yeah, I was in college for uh, biotechnology, you know, curing cancer, that sort of stuff. It was really exciting, cutting edge technology. I still think it's really exciting. Um, and my brother had started other companies before, and I didn't want to work with him, and so I, I you know, wasn't that interested. But when he started SmugMug, I started uploading my own photos to SmugMug and thought, wow, they're, uh, they're doing something really cool. And he talked me into dropping out of college to join him at SmugMug at the time, uh, not intending for me to be COO or anything fancy like that, but to just... I started uh, just taking care of our customers. I was doing customer support, eventually built the customer support program, built into product management, QA, all sorts of things. I've now run half the departments at some point or the other and just kind of slowly built that skill set over the years here at SmugMug. Uh, that's a fascinating uh, history. Can we rewind and take a look at a little bit of the history of SmugMug? The, where did the idea come from? How did you see that there was something missing in the marketplace? And then you know, what, what things were you doing to turn it into a successful business? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the genesis, the idea really comes from the lack of anyone else doing what we wanted. I mean, so many of these ideas start this way. Uh, at the time, there were a lot of options for uh, photo sharing and photo storage online, the biggest of which was owned by Kodak, which in 2002 was one of the biggest brands on earth, one of the most recognizable. They had a platform called Ophoto, eventually it was Kodak Gallery. Everybody used it. It was free to use to put your photos online, but it had one big caveat. You had to buy prints of your photos every six months or they deleted your photos, right? And so that was what they were trying to sell. They were trying to monetize this by selling you prints, which of course they made the printers and the ink and the papers and it was the whole ecosystem. But we discovered uh, the hard way it's really easy to miss an email warning you that you really, really need to go buy prints and there's no other way around it. And they deleted all of our photos, uh, a family member's photos. So we started looking, looking for something else. There's got to be somewhere else to put our photos, right? Um, passionate about photography, want to put our photos online, want to keep them safe, want to share them. Uh, and there really wasn't. There were a few other, I mean, there are plenty of other services and it was either kind of the mix, uh, like Shutterfly or Snapfish, really trying to sell you prints. Um, and I buy prints, but that's not the core to what I want to do with my photos. And then there were some other mediocre platforms where they were revolving around trying to put ads next to your photos. And it, it's just really awkward when you are sharing your trip to Disneyland and there's a Viagra ad next to your photos, right? Like this is, and we just thought there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a more simple photographer oriented way to put your photos online. And honestly, we started it thinking it was a side project. We weren't sure there was something really there. We thought we could build the whole thing in three months and be done and just run this kind of side project. So we did. We built it in three months. Of course, now the feature list <laughs> and like what we want to build is longer than ever. But the initial version came out in three months. And then it was kind of the big question of, well, now how do we keep this thing online? You know, we weren't selling prints. We do now as, as kind of a part of it, but we weren't selling prints at the time. Uh, we definitely didn't want ads on our site, as I just talked about, and so we just asked customers to pull out their credit card and pay what we thought was a fair price to for the service. For was it hobbyware, or did you did you actually think there was a business here? 
in the beginning, in the very, very beginning, it was definitely hobby wear. It was, we wanted somewhere to put our photos. I mean, as soon as you start thinking about taking credit cards, you're at least considering, is there money here? So we, we started with just beta, right? Friends and family, everybody was free. Um, and then they were using it and they were liking it. And that, at that point, it's still hobby wear. It's like, okay, do we have something? Yeah, people are really resonating with it. So now it's, okay, well, can we charge money? And that's the, that's the really big step of, will somebody pull out their credit card and actually pay you? I'll tell you, the investors that we knew really didn't think so. Uh, we ended up bootstrapped because of that uh, and plenty of other reasons, but nobody wanted to put their money behind this idea because asking those customers to pull out that credit card. So after a few months of letting people try it free, we pulled the switch and, and asked for credit cards. And I, I remember like that morning, somebody found us on Google they pulled out their credit card. We didn't know who it was. It wasn't like grandma, right, <laughs> coming in and placing that first order. And they, they placed that order November 15th, 2002. And uh, almost 17 years later, they are still paying and still using the site, that, that very first customer. So, And so back in 2002, to, I mean, to put it in perspective, we didn't have the iPhones. We photo sharing. I mean, everyone was still, I think, pretty print-centric at that point. Uh, and you took a different approach about actual habit, photo storage and photo sharing. Was that the the uh, the angle that you were promoting? Absolutely, digital photography getting really really big at that time. That was right around like there were a few things that that we timed it brilliantly. You only know these in retrospect, right? Uh, but Canon digital rebels were just starting to hit the shelves at Costco, right? And so there's this explosion of these like you get this digital rebel kit. And, and photography was fun. It was digital, and digital was starting to get really great. And we were convinced that paper prints were dying. Um, we thought you'd see it on your computer, maybe your laptop. Even laptops weren't that great at the time. It, we were years away from something like an iPhone. I'm not really sure what we were thinking, that <laughs> prints were going to die. But we totally uh, weren't doing anything with prints. We actually wired up, uh, our customers kept asking us to buy prints. We thought, well, that's interesting. So we just wired up an API with Shutterfly, and we just sent the orders there without actually collecting any revenue on those orders. We didn't think through it until Shutterfly disabled our API key. And then we started looking for a partner, and we realized there was money there. And now it, that's a very thriving uh, part of our business, the prints. Prints, uh, especially these days, wall art, you want to pull it right out of the box, put a canvas print or a metal print right on the wall. So it, it's happening now, but we totally bet in the beginning that prints were dying. We just, we were wrong. So what do you see as the, the key to success for the business uh, over these years, having that same customer for 17 years? Uh, definitely staying on top of technology. The, you know, as you pointed out, the industry has shifted so dramatically. Um, at the time, yeah, we were seeing a lot of Digital Rebel and, and similar shots, but everybody had those little, we always called them happy, snappy cameras, but everybody had a pocket camera, right? Um, you'd take with you on vacation, but now our phone that we have with us all the time is a way better camera than any of those were. And so that's just one small part of how technology has changed. We did not anticipate that. Many of our competitors at the time didn't respond quickly and they're gone, right? The, the, the iPhone, the Android phones, I mean, you look at what the Pixel is doing with cameras. These have become just core to the experience of photography, including for professionals. So staying on top of that has been uh, huge. 
the internet in general is just a very, very different place. And watching and being early adopters, being technologists at heart, and focusing on what it is our customers want uh, has kept us relevant and uh, integral to the workflow of our customers. So what, what do you see as the, uh, the buying expectations? How, how have those changed over time? And then how, if you look out, what do you predict uh, th those changes will be as we move forward? So I think the buying expectations are, because we're a subscription revenue business, because you continue to renew, you continue to pay us money, uh, there's the expectation that your money is fueling improvement and growth, right? Um, we have to be on all the latest devices. That's why we are launch day partners on the iOS app store. The day it came out, we were on that. We were one of the very few who were there. So I think they continue to uh, expect those improvements. And so it's a continually shifting model. One of the things that our customers are asking for right now is uh, auto backing up the photos on their phone, right? Most people have three, 5,000 photos on their phone that they don't know what they would do with if they, say, lost that phone or dropped it in the toilet or whatever. Yes, you have these iCloud backups, but they're all bundled together in a weird way, and you don't actually know if all of your photos are truly, truly safe. So you want somebody you trust, a smug mug, to make sure those photos are safe. And so, like, having those seamless experiences, yes, we will, we will you know, back these up, keep them private, keep them safe only for you. That's where we're at right now. That was not a world we could envision. I think going forward, there are a lot of really interesting things um, that we're starting to see with uh, artificial intelligence and computer vision and machine learning, right? Uh, I think the easiest example is you're sitting at dinner and you think, okay, well, where is that photo of Billy on the beach when he was three years old in Hawaii? And you can't find it because you don't remember. You can start doing the math. Well, okay, if he was three years old or maybe he was three, and you, you start flipping through your phone and 20 minutes later you give up, right? Um, those are things that we can start beginning to enable. You see that in, in both iOS and Android. Both of them are starting to do that on your device. And whether we let them do it and, and keep that rich metadata or we start adding to that, I think is going to become really, really important. You're just going to ask SmugMug, hey, find me that photo I loved of Billy eating sand when he was three in Hawaii. And we have to figure that out, right? We have to go and get that because if we don't, somebody will. And so how does that, uh, you, know, you know, when you look at AI and the, the model that you talked about in terms of, you know, having a paid subscription model, so it's not an invasive experience, that there's a level of privacy there, how do you then balance that with, we're going to auto-detect, you know, uh, location, people, things, whatever it happens to be that you're auto-detecting? Huge question, right? Like, we, everybody's a little uneasy. Uh, I'm uneasy with all of this data collection, this kind of idea of surveillance capitalism. Many of the big players in our space, the names you know, the Facebooks and the Googles, are, are, are you know, increasing and doubling down on this. Uh, and we've taken a stance of consumer privacy. And so for us, um, I think there's several balances here. Are our customers asking for it? our customers aren't asking for it, we are not going to go in there and do this, right? Um, so whether the model is potentially an opt-in, um, but there's some other things we can do. I mean, a simple potential obvious thing is, you know, maybe I just don't look at faces, right? And it seems like so obvious because everybody's obsessed about like, oh, the facial recognition, but 
I can deliver a lot of this without that. Um, but I think being really transparent is one of them. Uh, letting customers opt in, opt out, telling them what we're actually doing. Part of what makes people uneasy is nobody will tell us, right? I don't know what Facebook is doing with my Instagram photos. Nobody does except somebody inside that building. So I think as we get to those things, uh, is a customer asking for it? Okay, well then maybe we'll build it. If they're not, we're not building it. Um, but are they asking for it? Can we improve their experience? And then having an honest, real two-way conversation with our customers about what it is we're doing and do you wanna do that or not? And it seems so simple and yet nobody seems to be willing to engage in that. Sounds like you're, you're a company that's willing to do those types of things based off of even how you, you, you started the company, the way you approached all of the, the privacy up front as well as the, you know, we'll see if people are willing to pay for this. Sounds like you've put the customer at the center uh, of the choices that you make as a company. Do you have a, like a company mantra or motto or, or a mission statement that centers around the customer or? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, are, we are actually, uh, for as customer-centric as we are, I will, I'll put one caveat there because uh, in our corporate values, number one is employees. We're actually employee first. And then immediately after that is uh, our company value of thrill our customers. It's not just you know, satisfy or take care of. We are out there to thrill our customers. We have a very simple, uh, at least from my perspective, relationship with our customers. Um, we ask them to pay a fair price and we deliver a fair value. Uh, there is no other middle person in there. There's no other master, right? Like I'm not serving ads based on your interest. And so, you know, even if you're paying, say, $10 to a service, but they then make $50 on advertising to you from some of the big brands out there, who are they really taking care of, right? Are you more, more valuable than the big brands who are paying more money to get your attention? With us, it's really, really simple. I'm taking money for a service that we've both agreed is a fair transaction, and so I'm just taking care of you. It keeps me really, really centered. My incentives are aligned. It's in our values, so we would stick to our, our core values anyways, but our incentives are aligned in such a way that we have to take care of our customers or we go out of business. It, it really works out pretty simply and uh, I think really well. Yeah. What, um, so what are the mechanisms you use to have that dialogue with your customer. You mentioned a couple times already about if your customers told you this. What, what things do you have in place to get that feedback? You know, backing all the way up to the beginning of the conversation, you might remember I got recruited in to do customer support right at the get-go. Uh, I was employee number four, um, including the two co-founders. So literally the second non-co-founding employee was, handled, was hired to do customer support. Uh, it was just right from the beginning, we've obsessed about that conversation with our customers. Our average response time, uh, if you send us an email 24-7, you know, any 365 days a year, we actually say 364, but it, it's truly 365 days a year, our average response time is 15 minutes. You email me at 3 in the morning, uh, you know, in California, we have somebody in Europe who's answering that email and you're gonna get an email right away. So that's a very small part, but an important part. They know that if something happens, if they accidentally delete their priceless photo, we are there in minutes to get it back for them, to take care of them. Um, so we have this, this conversation with our customers, this engaging dialogue. If you go talk to one of our customers, that's the first thing they'll talk about, is our customer support and how we uh, engage. 
we're also just, we're really passionate about photography ourselves. We are all customers. A huge portion of our company uh, applied to work here because they were customers first and just loved the platform. And so that also helps keep us all grounded. That's where our priceless memories are. That's where my most important photos are. They're on SmugMug. I, I don't know where they are other than that. And so we are deeply aligned in using our product uh, with our customers. So you've also mentioned a few times about you know a fair value, fair price. Uh, as you look forward from a monetization standpoint, how do you contemplate the different monetization models that you've mentioned, right? So if you said, hey, we want to do facial detection and this is what we would use it for, you might say, okay, well, we'll charge a premium price for that. How do you contemplate pricing and monetization? Yeah, I mean, pricing is always, you know, a very sensitive thing, especially because we had to do a tiny handful. We haven't really changed the prices super, super dramatically. We've had to raise prices over the years, right? We've been in business for 17 years. We started with one plan at $30 a year, right? Um, we've had to raise that. And part of that is segmenting out what a customer wants. So we have a huge portion of uh, our platform is professional photographers who are working pros, who are selling prints. Right? They go shoot a wedding, they come in, they set the prices, the bride comes to SmugMug, orders through SmugMug, we do the fulfillment, and then we're doing things like depositing the money in their bank account and giving them tax uh, documents at the end of the year. And Those are very, very different needs than somebody like me who's a kind of a family photographer and keeping my memories. So. Those are very, very different pricing tiers, right? And I think that helps us kind of hone in on, on plan levels, helps it be more sane. We don't really do any add-ons. Um, you know, I, it's not $3.12 extra a month if you want video. You know, we, we really try and keep the tiers as targeted to the sorts of things you want to do. Are you, are you really just looking for an amazing place to keep all of your family memory, memories safe and your travels and that sort of stuff? That's one tier. Are you an aspiring pro who wants a portfolio and somebody may or may not ever buy? Um, that's a very different use case and that's a different tier. And then, of course, if you are a working pro, you have very specific needs to, to fuel your business. So. We still try in that regard as well to keep it as transparent as possible. Uh, there are not complex pricing tiers. There are four plans. You kind of we help you figure out what plan you have, and then that's the price you pay. And then when you contemplate global, because I assume you've got customers worldwide, does any of the complexities of global weigh into the equation again around whether it's uh, data protection, data privacy, data storage? pricing considerations? How do you contemplate all those things? Yeah, I mean, as soon as you start uh, going global, it, it starts getting really complicated. I mean, it's complicated enough because we sell physical products alongside subscriptions. You know, we sell these on-demand print products. It was already really, really complicated just in U.S. tax law, as you probably know, county by county. And then now you start adding other countries and other currencies and other laws and that sort of stuff. Um, it does add a lot of complexity. You know, we, we're selling physical goods out of a lab in Scotland uh, that's delivering also around the world, but especially mainland Europe. That has its own implications, especially when you start getting to things like, well, Scotland's currently in the UK and the UK is kind of currently <laughs> may or may not be in the EU and where does that work? 
you know, so absolutely increases a lot of complexity. Some's harder than others. Honestly, GDPR is is one of those big buzzwords, right? The data protection um, for that one, it was very complex to make it uh, exactly compliant. But for us, it was a relatively easier task because we want our customers' data to be taken care of. But yeah, I mean, huge question. The answer is absolutely. It, it gets way more complicated. Um, trying to deliver, especially that two-sided marketplace of, of adding prints and gifts as well from professional photographers. You know, I don't have a lab in Australia. We get asked in Australia. It, it's a long ways from our lab in Santa Cruz, California to ship a print to Australia. So extra considerations there as well. So where do you see, where do you see your uh, space of uh, you know, the photography space going over the next five years? Whew, that's a that's a huge question. Um, you know, on the on the geekier side, separate from my particular slice of the industry, I, I think computational photography is really exciting. This is what like the Pixel is doing really well on Google phones, right? Uh, where they're taking all this amazing stuff they like see in the dark night mode right now, or in portrait modes on the iPhone, and that sort of stuff. I think is really really exciting. What we are seeing computers take with the pixels we're capturing and turn that into even better photography, I think is good for the industry. It's challenging at times for professional photographers, but there's always a place for somebody who really, really knows what they're doing with the camera. For the rest of most of us with the camera, it means we're capturing our memories in a better way, in, a, in something that we'll, be, uh, that we'll be proud of 20 years from now. Um, so I think that's really, really exciting. I think people will be taking more and more photos. As the photos come out better and better, it's a addicting sort of thing, right? Like those photos matter to you and the better they are, the more likely you are to take photos. I think that's why we're seeing so many more photos taken now. The phone cameras are getting better, they're always with you. And now that we're adding that computational photography on top of it, it's getting really, really exciting. So I, I see nothing but growth in terms of the number of people who love photography. It's a shift, uh, but it, the numbers are much higher. Is there a balance between uh, you know, the, the better the photo, I'm assuming the higher the memory it takes to to store it, store that storage, photo. and then of course storage prices likely continue to come down. Is there a yeah so point still to happen there? Or? This has, I mean, you can imagine being in the storage business. This is one of those things that we've watched and panicked about many times <laughs> over the years, uh, because the longer so yes, this, the simple answer is photos these days are larger in storage size than photos that were taken in two thousand two. And on top of that, as I mentioned, our customers stick around forever. So not only is that customer in 2002 uploading these new larger photos, we're still storing everything they had from 2002. So that, that keeps growing and growing and growing. Um, storage prices continue to fall uh, very dramatically. There's a lot of uh, technological advancement and a lot of innovation happening there, as well as competition. So overall, I think we, we're still looking at a very positive future. You know, we're not raising prices, outstripping inflation or anything like that. In fact, I think we've fallen a little behind on inflation. So the business model does work, but it's something that continues to to keep us worried as, as the photos get bigger and bigger and bigger. How does, uh, you know, the, the snap glasses, the VR, the AR, 360, how does that all play? Uh, where, do, where do you see that going? You know, 
I think there'll be something there. Uh, we as, a, as an industry keep taking stabs at this. I think there's probably going to be something there. VR is an, a very interesting and immersive uh, experience. You can think of whether it's photography or whatever, some of the things like just the idea of being able to walk around the Louvre in, in VR uh, feels like a compelling experience. It's, it's uh, more accessible to the entire world. The more people who have access to those works of art, to this you know, timeless uh, classics, I think the better we are as, as humans. So I think there's something there. It still feels uh, like we haven't yet found the exact right use case for that in the photography space. Mm -hmm. um, I see some really cool 360 degree photos. There's now some really great 360 degree cameras. You can just raise it, click a button, and boom, you have it. You can pan all around. That's super cool when you're like at a festival or you know a concert or something like that and you get this really cool experience. So I think supporting those will become important. We do tend to watch to where the customers are actually really truly engaged in them. We're seeing that with live photos on iOS where customers are liking that now and they're starting to use it. How do we support that sort of short snippet? You know, I think for us we watch when is it a value to our customers before we dive in and invest heavily? So where do you see, so we, we talked about where you, where you think uh, photography is going over the next five years. How about uh, where do you see sort of the uh, e-commerce and the monetization activities going over the next, the next five years? I really have loved to see the trend to direct to consumer. We're seeing a lot of these brands become colossally huge. I don't know uh, if you saw the news recently about Away, the, the luggage, the rolling bags, right? Um, they just got valued at $1.4 it, It's crazy, but what's happening is we're seeing these connections directly to the brands that are creating them. Uh, there's all sorts of shoe companies that are making really exciting waves, the luggage companies we talked about. We're talking about places like Warby Parker, and there's a lot of these really exciting direct-to-consumer uh, products where they're building the relationship directly between this brand and the person who's buying it and using it, rather than relying on either traditional brick and mortars or the Amazons and Walmarts of the world. I personally really like that. I, I think then they rely on the customer or the uh, company to be very customer friendly and to take care of their customers and to have that relationship. I think that's only going to grow. I think we're seeing that success now in its infancy. I think it's going to become more and more important for brands to have that relationship. So what would you say is the best online shopping experience outside of Smug Mug and Flickr? So even this crushes ours as well. Like I will tell you what my favorite experience was. Uh, I'm wearing a pair of Allbirds right now. I was on my way to an airport. I was sitting in the parking shuttle and so I was just flipping through my email. Allbird emails me, they say, hey, we've got this new color combo in stock for a limited time only. I click on it and go, hey, I really like that. Sure, I'll buy a pair in size 12. And then on my iPhone, went from email to their web client to uh, Apple Pay to delivered. And I bought from reading the email to it being truly finished purchased was under a minute. I just looked at it and said, yeah, okay, I'll buy that. They pull your address in because Apple Pay has it. It scanned my face and said, are you sure? And I said, yeah, I'm sure. And, and like two days later, I have a pair of shoes sitting on my doorstep from, I mean, it's a little dangerous from impulse <laughs> shopping, but it was just so effortless. Uh, 
that that was a truly impressive purchase right there. So. And, and you know, when the product showed up, you said it took two days or whatever to, to show up. Was there uh, obviously the, the shoes must have been a great fit. The shoes were a great fit. The the post order experience was really great. We're seeing a lot of that happen now, where the communication is really clear. You know when you're going to get your order. If it's a more complicated product, they start prepping you for how you might need it. I I didn't need that for shoes, obviously. Um, you start getting this regular communication, it'll start telling you, hey, it's gonna arrive at such and such a time, it's out for delivery, they'll follow up, hey, it got delivered, how was it? Are you happy, are you, are you okay with this? So Allbirds definitely was in that mode. I knew when they were gonna arrive, I knew when they're sitting on my porch, they checked in to make sure that, okay, did it fit? Can we do anything to make this experience better? I think all of those touch points help make a really consistent experience. How about on the flip side? Uh, any sites or experiences that uh, that you see that have gone wrong for you, or you know, somebody might have, uh, you know, what's the biggest, you know, missed opportunity that you've seen? I've had some just really bad experiences with some uh, furniture stores online. I had one that arrived damaged, and they just getting a person on the phone was impossible. Now you're left with this giant piece of furniture, and you don't know what to do with it, like okay, box it up and send it back to me because it has this big scratch. I had one where it, it, literally the bench was broken like, and I took pictures and, try, and they said, okay, we'll box up and send it back. How am I going to box the bench back up? I just spent three hours assembling the dang thing. In the end, I talked them into just a full refund and then I'm supposed to just throw this bench away. Um, I don't know fully what the answer there. I know there some of the new direct-to-consumer mattresses are trying to do things around that, right? They'll come and pick it back up for you. Um, but I think that's a, that's a tough one. I mean, it's, it's a lot harder to send that bench back than it is a pair of shoes that didn't fit, right? right. So I don't have the answer there, but I had some really bad experiences with multiple different uh, furniture stores to the point where I stopped buying furniture online. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned early on about how important the customer experience is, and then given, given your employee number four, uh, at the company in the role that you were in. Obviously, there's, I assume, you, you mentioned the example of a customer who accidentally deleted a photo, and what can you do to, to recover that, yeah. or whatever the scenarios might be. You know, but it's, to me, a lot of times, the fact of um, when, whether it was a bad experience or you know, that you did something that you weren't supposed to, an outage or whatever, or it's, you know, something that the customer did, right? And it's the, the rise of a bad experience, you know, how you respond to that bad experience that ultimately proves or, you know, shows whether or not, uh, you know, shows, shows how, how good of a company you actually are as it relates to customer service. Yeah, absolutely. Recovering from that error, and we all are going to make errors, right? Sometimes it's our fault. Sometimes it's just, you know, something went wrong. Uh, you know, we made a button that wasn't clear or whatever, and you deleted the photo because yeah. you thought the button did something else. You have to intentionally uh, engineer how to recover from that. You know, we, we make sure we don't immediately delete your photo because we know accidents happen. So we keep it around just in case. It's, it's you know, it's gone if you do want it gone, but, you know, we can do that. Um, sometimes we get the print process wrong, and sometimes uh, you know UPS or any of the other, all of the other carriers will damage a print in transit, right? And so engineering how that experience goes for us, you know, we have a particularly great uh, return process because I don't actually need the photo of your girl's dance recital back. That does no value to me, unlike 
say, the wrong size shoes. So we ask, for us, we ask you to destroy the photo uh, and you know just snap a quick photo, just cut it up or whatever, and we'll get a new one out to you immediately right away. You don't have to go to the post office and return it. We're a little lucky in that space, right? I don't need a bench back. I don't need a shoe back. But, but being really intentional about how do you recover that, I think uh, another great example, and I'm going to go back to a brand that I've been reading about lately with Away, the suitcase. Mm-hmm. They have built-in battery packs when they launched. That was one of the really exciting things about them, right? And then the, uh, the TSA or the FAA or one of them changed the rules on you can't check a bag with a battery pack in it. And all of a sudden, all these customers who's bought these you know, bags are left holding, you know, holding the bag. <laughs> um, and I think the response separates brands. The, the, there was a brand, and I don't even remember their name, that, that goes to show you who was one of the early pioneers in that. They're out of business. They're gone because that gutted their market. Away stood up and said, you know what? We'll make it right. We will either replace any of your suitcases or send you a kit to kind of take the battery pack, and now the battery pack's removable. But they've solved that. That's not their fault that, that rules changed afterwards, but they you know, stood up and took care of their customers. So you have to be really intentional about these things. The, the experiences don't just happen. You have to create them. All right, shifting gears just for uh, a minute. What was the, the thought process with the, the acquisition of, of Flickr? Um, you know, we tried for a, a lot of years before we actually managed to acquire Flickr when we heard, uh, as much of the world heard, that Yahoo might be on the chopping block and at the time, the prevailing sentiment was that it would get chopped up and sold in pieces. And uh, we thought, hey, there might be something really interesting here with Flickr. The real core idea for us was, A, we love Flickr. Uh, we view it uh, as a really important uh, cultural part of both the internet but humanity in general. Uh, there's a there's billions of significant photos on there that don't exist elsewhere, uh, all the way down to the British Library has a, one million historic documents stored in their account. Um, the Internet Archive has six million uh, scanned book pages from historic book pages that are uh, posted, and then of course a wealth of just stunning photography, and so it felt at risk, which is one thing, we, we, we didn't want to see Flickr disappear. Right? That, that's the nightmare scenario for so many people. And, and this happens. So many of the services over the years have gone away for a variety of reasons. So that was one fear. We also thought it, it was uh, a lot of our customers were using Flickr and SmugMug. They both solve different things in the photography space. They're very complementary. And so we thought, wow, if we can, if we can you know, buy and invest in, we're actually doing right by our customers who are using both and want both and are asking us oftentimes out of fear that Flickr was going to disappear to build Flickr-like things into SmugMug, which was hard because they're not, I mean, from, from a 10,000-foot view, they seem very similar, right? You put your photos online, but they do really different things. So that was kind of the initial thing. Turns out Verizon swooped in and bought the entire Yahoo all at once. Um, and so we kind of kept lines of communication warm and we just said, hey, listen, we love Flickr. We hope it's in good hands. If, if it's not something that you want to continue to invest in and thrive, we're always here. And eventually we were able to start that conversation. Uh, but for us, it was just passion for photography. We do not really acquire other brands. This is really outside our wheelhouse. And we just thought there was something really important to photography and we would like to not just preserve it, but invest in it. 
how do you decide then as you move forward which place you're going to put which features? You know, I think we will continue to invest in both platforms. And so there will be plenty of overlap. There'll be places where, hey, this makes sense to both customers. We really do want each platform to be uh, standalone in that you might be a Flickr customer or you might be a SmugMug customer or you might be both. And all of those are good answers, right? And so there's places where we can build a feature once and share that core technology. You know, a lot of the pipeline for how we store photos, render photos, and share photos, that sort of technology is build once, deploy twice for, for the two platforms. And it's a great, you know, economies of scale sort of situation. But there'll be plenty of times where we build the same feature twice in two different ways because our customers are asking for it on both platforms because it's something core to photography. So uh, I really think it will come back to customer value for each platform. Does it make sense for a customer? If it does, you know, and it really is a great idea and we're going to build it, we'll make sure it works brilliantly for that platform. All right, my last question is, who would you like to see as a guest on this podcast and why? I've mentioned a few brands that, that I admire in the e-commerce space that tend to almost all be kind of direct to consumer. Um, so I think that anybody who's really focusing on that consumer experience of buying that would be really exciting. You know, you're your Allbirds, which I mentioned, I'm wearing a pair here, your Away, you know, luggage, you know, there, there's several other really great, you know, obviously the Warby Parkers of the world and um, Glossier, you know, in the makeup space. And there's, there's a whole bunch of kind of these uh, brands that are disrupting what it means to sell stuff online. They're finding their own audience rather than relying on Amazon to bring them an audience. I have so many questions for them, and so I think if you can ask those questions, I would listen. <laughs> That's great. Uh, all right, so was there anything that we missed that you would like to bring up? One of the things that, that we think will make the experience exceptional on Flickr and allow us to continue investing also in SmugMug in a way that benefits both customer bases and the, especially the overlapping customer base really well is any sort of experience that they both want, that they're both asking for. And one obvious example is on smugmug.com, uh, we offer on-demand prints and gifts. We have a very, very deep catalog, thousands of SKUs. You can customize each one. It's a very, very complicated, from an engineering point of view, shopping cart. I hope it's a very simple and elegant one from a customer point of view. But it's a very complicated thing that we've built over the years. and just the thought of building something like that again for Flickr would terrify me. But it's one of those marvelous things where we can then enable that for Flickr customers to buy their own photos. And by funneling that commerce through there and that experience through there, we can then justify much bigger investments in it, right? And we can build this one single platform with this amazing you know, ability to purchase your most priceless memories, your favorite art, Around the world, we're shipping these to almost every country. I think basically every country we're allowed to ship things to. And so I'm really excited about having both of those platforms. We've added millions of customers to an e-commerce experience that we've been refining for 15 years. That, that's the, what I'm looking forward to this summer. By the time this podcast is out, we might have already released it, which is very exciting to me. 